You're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Welcome to the show. This is the statistics podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Uh, You're listening to episode 24. Uh, I'll be talking with uh, several individuals who are involved with the International Society for Biopharmaceutical Statistics, or ISBS. In this conversation, I'll be uh, talking with Amit Bhattacharya, Jay Chen, Frank Fan, and Yang Song. I'd actually hoped to have this conversation earlier in the summer uh, before they had their international meeting, but everybody, of course, here has day jobs, and it uh, sometimes can be a bit challenging to get everyone together uh, to have a conversation uh, about what's going on with the conference, uh, what's going on with the ISBS, Uh, but we eventually did get to... uh, have this conversation. Uh, Most of us were in the U.S. Uh, Jay was in China at the time. Uh, We did have the conversation, but we managed to pull it off, and uh, hopefully here's uh, another uh, organization that, uh, if you're not involved uh, or thinking about getting involved with uh, trying to provide opportunities for people, uh, or statisticians involved in uh, biopharmaceutical statistics. It's another opportunity for you to get involved uh, and give back and uh, volunteer your time. So without further ado, uh, let's get started with episode 24. Uh, today we continue our uh, sort of unofficial trend of talking about other biopharmaceutical groups uh, that have uh, an emphasis in statistics. We've talked with PSI and FSPI in the past, uh, our topic today uh, is the International Society for Biopharmaceutical Statistics, or ISBS. Today in the U.S., I'm talking with Amit Bhattacharya, Senior Director of Quantitative Sciences at GlaxoSmithKline, uh, Frank Fan, Director of Statistical Science at Novartis, and Yang Song, Senior Principal Scientist in Biostatistics at Merck. Uh, all three of these individuals were program co-chairs for the just-completed uh, joint ISBS-DIA-China Quantitative Science Forum that took place in Beijing at the end of June. And on the line from China, we're talking with Jay Chen, uh, the Senior Global Group Head of Integrative Quantitative Sciences at Novartis uh, and Chair of the Organizing Committee for ISBS. So good evening to all of you in the U.S. and uh, good morning, Jay, in China. Good evening. Evening, Richard. Thank you. Good evening. So I know there's a, a lot of us on the call, but if we can each of us briefly describe uh, your current role at your company and uh, what it is you do uh, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Amit, let's start with you. Okay. Amit Bhattacharya, as you mentioned, um, I am a Senior Director of Quantitative Sciences at GSK. I have multiple roles. Um, on one side, I head up a group, I manage a group, in India uh, on statistics and programming. I also work in the um, health outcome analytics area, 
which I have been um, involved in the last couple of years. Uh, this is Frank Fenn, and uh, I am the director of the Statistical Science and Novartis. Actually, I am working in the uh, organization called uh, Novartis Institute of Biopharmacal Research, uh, or NIBRA, uh, which the primary role is supporting the early development of the of the drug development. Uh, so my role, my primary role, is uh, leading a group of statisticians supporting the infectious disease area drugs. Yeah. So this is Yang uh, Yang Song. So I, I'm currently in the late stage clinical biostatistics group at America. I focus on uh, oncology drug uh, development. So I actually, I just moved back to the U.S. from China. So after working at Merck's China R&D branch for three years. So there I focus on building a local team to support Merck's global and 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 China and also regional pipelines. It's Chi Cheng and senior global group head to with Novartis. Actually, I joined Novartis just four months ago and uh, have been working in the pharmaceutical industry for more uh, over 20 years. And uh, my job role in Novartis, I currently will be leading the uh, uh, Bicester group in uh, globally, actually. Uh, my direct report will be from U.S. and uh, in China, too, supporting drug development. All right, very good. And, uh, of course, we're all speaking because you're currently involved with the International Society of Biopharmaceutical Statistics, or ISBS. So I guess the first question is, uh, what motivated the formation of uh, ISBS? Okay, we have a one-page uh, uh, advertisement on every uh, symposium program brochure. And they clearly state ISBS and was set up with uh, the objective to provide international um, forum for biopharmaceutical statisticians across the world to share and exchange information, experience, the research findings, and also to improve and uh, promote the harmonization of a statistical practice in the industry at the international front. Uh, that's the motivation to set up the uh, International Society for Biopharmaceutical Statistics, which is the U.S. as IS registered nonprofit organization. So the ISBS is a is a U.S. based organization that uh, has uh, that develops uh, or has a symposium uh, every other year uh, at different locations globally. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. It's a registered with the U.S. Internal Revenue Service, a nonprofit organization, back to 2007. Richard, I also want to add that the ISBS uh, was uh, co-founded by, I mean, NJ was one of the co-founders, and uh, uh, the other co-founder is uh, uh, Wenjun Wang and uh, Mark Chen, uh, who are not here with us uh, today. Mm-hmm. Um, I still remember, I mean, uh, when it was founded, like, in the year 2007, at that time, uh, both Jen and I, uh, we're working at Merck, so I, I heard he saying, "Oh, I mean, uh, there are quite some statistical society organizations, uh, but uh, there hasn't been one really focused on the pharmaceutical statistics." So, so I think that's one of the driving factor. Jay and the other co-founder decide to, you know, uh, you know uh, build a, a new organization from scratch. Mm-hmm. Other motivation uh, was to give that international feeling and to include the uh, academics and the regulatory and industry all together, but focus on the pharmaceutical research. 
what probably differentiated other with others is that international flavor, especially with regulatory and hearing from different you know, European regulators and the U.S. regulators and the Chinese regulators, and also getting some feel from the industry in all the international, many of the international countries. As far as the uh, the participation by industry, regulatory, and academia, uh, what proportion of that would you say is uh, from each area? I don't know if Jay, you have the numbers or percentage approximately, but I think we got mostly industry. We got uh, keen people from the regulatory in almost all the conferences we had, and um, few from the academia. So at the end, I think the proportion of industry transitions um, were higher, but it's not just the number, but I think the important representation from the regulatory regulations, regulatory board bodies are definitely a plus for all the uh, conferences we had. The most recent uh, conference we talked a little bit about or introduced it uh, was the joint ISBS-DIA China Quantitative Science Forum that took place in Beijing. Uh, and the theme of that conference was big and small data, the role of statistics and drug development. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the theme and the uh, the mission of this particular uh, conference this past year? Yeah, we have a... Um quite a bit discussion about the, the thing. When we enter into the pharmacogenomics, there's so many uh, the areas with the big data, for example, drug safety, bioinformatics, genetics, uh, all the data are huge. And how can we take out the, the useful information from all the big data? And to, especially early this year, uh, President Obama announced the precision medicine and the many, if you look at the New England Journal of Medicine and the JAMA, both leading journals, they have several editorials about precision medicine, discussion precision medicine using big data. They also you know, discuss the clinical studies, and we have different companies conducted different studies, even for the same class of compound. And eventually, at the age of data transparency, every company should be able to find out for the data being collected by other companies. And how can we use this information? And it's all of the big data issues. And we have a quite a bit of discussion. We have a we have a, a panel discussion session this year in, in Beijing. One is the methodology panel discussion, the other one the industry leadership panel discussion. And those panel discussions they discuss the big data, how the big data will impact our statistical uh, conduct to derive the useful information to guide us for drug development. That's the big data in the uh, the theme of the the conference. Uh, so what does the uh, the small data refer to? Is this uh, having to do with rare diseases or orphan diseases and addressing some of the challenges for these particular diseases? I think uh, that probably has to do with uh, the personalized medicine. Actually, in the conference, we have several sessions about how to develop a personal medicine through subsequent analysis. So I think mm -hmm. by, by, by talking about the small data, we are referring to how we can tailor the therapies to a small group of patients trying to match the right drugs with the right patient. I think that's what small data refers to in this drug development context. Oh, I see, I see. Using a, a large amount of data, but uh, yeah, personalized medicine, um, I guess at, at its core is a is a subgroup problem in trying to understand who's going to respond to uh, or respond best to a particular treatment. 
And I, I think also if you look into the big data and small data from any angle, there are, you will get examples and this conference represented them. For example, where you had for many of the indirect treatment comparisons, you have data from different drugs against placebo and that in together makes a network of a big data, if you will. But similarly, there are studies which are more early stage and non-clinical. They deal with much more smaller size of data. In other words, you know, as big data has this definition now, which is, as uh, Jay mentioned, the genomics and the, you know, bioinformatics and all those other things. But you still have, you know, the, the traditional uh, clinical trial data. Some of them are quite big and some of them are small if it's early phase. So I think, you know, this conference addresses issues that's coming from different aspects of all these. The all together, I think, you know, it fits into the theme. Oh, yeah, I just want to second that because uh, right now drug development is really a data-driven science and decision process. So uh, for any new drug coming to market, it goes through a long period of time, sometimes more than uh, 10 years of development. So in the end, there will be uh, like a huge uh, consortium of data where we'll collect and analyze for the regulatory uh, submission and, and the review. The data or knowledge has uh, accumulated accumulating uh, stage. So it's always start with, uh, you know, the, the earlier animal, animal study, first in humans. So, so at those stages, the, uh, the data, the quantity of data is, is fairly small. So how to um, make the best decision at the earlier stage or decide whether to move forward or decide to pursue a different direction. I think that, that's uh, another understanding you know, of the small data in the drug development. Can you give us a sense of what the users experienced at this meeting, I guess, in terms of the uh, the number of sessions and uh, plenary and parallel and uh, how, how many people attended the, this conference this past year? I have uh, actually I'm working on the report of, of the conference. There were approximately about 350 people attending uh, this year's conference. In the past, there are the number of audience, even more. For example, in our first symposium, we have over 550. And the second one, 450. And uh, the third one in Washington, D.C., jointly with the IPSA, International International Chinese Statistical Association, uh, they had about 800 people attending. And uh, this year in Beijing, we have uh, 350. Several reasons with a small number of uh, uh, attendees, because uh, many in China, especially in Asia Pacific region, most of the international companies, they have a research R&D facility in Asia Pacific region, but the number of institutions are quite small compared to Western countries. So if, if I mean, for the attendees, if you look at the, 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 the number of institutions working in pharmaceutical industry or academia or in a reputable agency, majority of them in Western countries, in order for them to travel to China, they have to apply for international travel, and which is, I mean, quite expensive. That's a major reason for for us, so the number of people attending the conference shrinking down to 350. Back to your, your question, how many sessions? We have a 53 parallel sessions. We have a two um, keynote sessions, 
plenary keynote session and three plenary panel discussion sessions. Were these uh, were these sessions uh, all invited sessions, or did uh, individuals have uh, the opportunity to uh, submit abstracts for talks? Yeah, most of the sessions are invited sessions, but we do a couple invited uh, talks uh, as invited sessions. And also, I'll uh, add to what Jesus just said, uh, there are also uh, two days of short course before yeah. the, the main symposium that took place. And we yes, offer, just like, just to clarify, uh, Richard, as they mentioned, there are 53 sessions. A couple of them were contributed, combined into one session, but all 50, I think 51 of them were invited sessions. And uh, there were seven, in some cases, eight parallel sessions during one of those 90-minute slots. So you brought up the short courses. Um, I, I believe uh, in reading it, you had it on a diverse set of topics, uh, adaptive designs, Bayesian methods, multiple testing, benefit risk. Were these uh, full-day short courses? Uh, and how important, do, how important a role are the short courses in, in terms of the the conference and impasse symposia as far as offering training uh, to statisticians uh, in different areas of the world? Yeah, so so most of the, the short course are half-day course. There are only one full-day course. So, so like you said, the, um, the short course topic cover a variety of the, uh, the area in, in uh, you know, farming and drug development. I guess to us, it's, it's an important part of the conference because, you know, the during the um, contribute sessions, the um, speaker only get you know uh, about 20 minutes of speaking time. But uh, the short course, you know, focused on one subject, and uh, uh, sometimes there are like three instructors uh, who are all um, expert in this area. You know, spend you know half day to to eight hours to to go through the the concept. So, so to us, it's, it's a valuable tool uh, to offer. You know, uh, as part of the conference. Now, given that the, uh, the the conference was in China this past year and, and, and in China in years past, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about perhaps the different expectations uh, surrounding drug submissions uh, between China versus uh, Europe and the U.S. Um, statisticians probably have most of their experience uh, with U.S. regulatory submissions and, and maybe slightly less often with Europe, but... Um, Submissions to China or Japan may a bit, be a bit more infrequent. Um, are there any comments or, that you can say about the uh, different expectations about drug development in China or, or some of the challenges uh, in drug development in China? Um, yeah, this is Yang. So, um, so I, I, so for me, I, I happen to work in uh, in uh, in China for the last three years, and uh, there are several things that I can say about uh, what's the difference between China. And uh, U.S. and the EU uh, regulatory process, and why is that? Definitely, in China, it's a it's a slower process uh, to bring a product to the market. So the sponsor will need to have regulatory approval for both NDA and CSA. Uh, CSA is for clinical study application to start a clinical trial. So each proper process will have a long queuing proper process, which takes probably one to two years. Or even longer. So, uh, and if there are any queries during the review, the timeline will be further pu pushed out. So it's a much slower process compared to US and the EU. The other uh, aspect is that uh, the review, the review process and the communication with the uh, with uh, the reviewers 
are much less uh, are much less well organized compared. I mean, much less structured compared to uh, the the communication with EU or with US FDA. So there's no well defined timeline for the re review process and uh, for the steps within the process. So those are the same things um, that are quite different from the uh, the drug development and the regulatory process uh, in the West, which will uh, emphasize that, that um, if we want to have a good drug development in China, you probably need to have a very good local regulatory team who knows the local environment well in order for this uh, to work. Yeah, I agree with uh, Yang's comment. The pharmaceutical research and development in China started quite late compared to Western countries. Even for the Chinese, Chinese regulatory agency, the Chinese regulatory agency, CFDA, was set up in fact in 1987, 84 actually, and they start, you know, involving the change, the, you know, the several rounds of organizational change. And the right now it's officially called the China Food and Drug Administration. The organization is there, but the process is quite slow um, for many different reasons. And uh, their consideration, for example, is a multinational company doing the drug development in China, and a domestic company they're doing the same thing in China. And their research facility capability is not at the same level. And the regulatory agency has to take into consideration of this. And also, the, the medical practice in China is quite different from the other countries. And the disease profiles are also different. And, uh, uh, you know, for many different factors you have to consider. And also, of course, some of the political factors you have to, to, to take into consideration when they, they uh, stimulate the uh, the guidelines or guidance for drug development. That's why it's uh, quite slow. I well in my past five years experience working in China, is getting better and improved quite a bit. And also the CFDA um, the website just announced the the plan to use the next three years to uh, set up a quite ambitious goal in the next three years improve the review and approval process and uh, quite a bit. I, uh, I heard somebody else talk to me yesterday, but I didn't get a chance to look at the website. And so uh, I'm, to be honest with you, quite confident and they're getting improving, getting better, but still not uh, quite yet there. Now, are there requirements in the uh, submissions to China that, uh, that you have, say, one trial or two trials that uh, take place uh, solely within China or the, the population, uh, the, at least mostly, uh, coming from China? It's, just, uh, it's a very complex. Um, depend, uh, current approval process is still relying on a possible result from a global study. Say, for example, uh, there's a different, different way of conducting clinical studies in China. Currently, majority of multinational companies need like to China to have China to be part of a global study. If the drug has, is a truly innovative drug, 
And uh, the, second type, the second type of study, that if the drug has been approved in Western countries, uh, you can do the clinical trial in China alone, just include Chinese patients. And this will take, take much longer for approval for, for clinical study and, and even NDA. And for multi-regional clinical studies, uh, the approval and the approval process is much shorter compared to China alone studies. And uh, back to the, um, your question, um, you know, there is no universally accepted role or guideline, guidance in China whether you can use the Chinese patient alone to, for the NDA purpose. It depends on disease area. It's, uh, if it's uh, a very common disease in Western countries, but it's uh, very rare in China, and you can use a very small number of Chinese patients to get approval. But mm -hmm. for very prevalent disease in China, not common, not prevalent in Western countries, uh, you have to do particularly powered study in China by showing the drug working on Chinese patients. And for many disease areas, for many diseases, the number of cases uh, for Chinese patients account for more than 50% of the global total. For example, liver cancer, esophageal cancer, Chinese patients account for global total about 57%. Liver, liver cancer, about 54%. Diabetes, uh -huh. Chinese patients account for 37% of the global total. So it's, uh, you cannot you cannot imagine you use a small number of uh, Chinese patients to demonstrate efficacy to them some sort of you know what we call the consistency or the trend something like that. But you have to do sure. statistical power studies for this prevalent disease. Right. So I just want to add to what what Jason said. So I think in in general you have to have some Chinese patients when you file the NDA with the. Uh, with the China agency. However, there are certain situations uh, things will be different. For, for example, if you are talking about uh, fighting for, um, uh, for a vaccine, then you will need to have a local study, 100% Chinese. Uh, then if you are talking about doing some generic drug, um, for example, if you just want to uh, file something that's similar uh, to what's on the market, then probably you don't need to have um, a too many pay patients, and you can, you can just do a uh, do a bio uh, bioequivalence, and some sometimes they even allow you to do some equivalence without pay pay patients. So there there are like a, uh, there are many different uh, scenarios, and but in most scenarios you would need to have some some Chinese patients. Now, as far as the uh, the, the regulatory review uh, at the Chinese Food and Drug Administration. Is this, uh, do, do they follow a, a similar process to the U.S. where they try to recreate the analysis that the sponsor submits or um, a little bit more like Europe where they um reviewing the reports? Um, um, the right. operation of Chinese electoral agencies is quite different from, from FDA, for example. The Center for Drug Evaluation, which is called CDE, has only 100, less than 150 people. If you think about the US FDA, 
quantitative scientists that includes statisticians, epidemiologists, uh, uh, pharmacometricians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So what do we handle in the FDA? But for CFDA, you only have permanent position of a statistician only have three. So they don't repeat analysis or, or what we did limit to the submission. We rely on your analysis and we also rely on external advisory committee or experts to reveal the submission package. We also uh, you know, the, we have to consider the multiple factors. We have to take into consideration when we approve or disapprove for either clinical study or NDA package. So, over, uh, generally speaking, the, the conduct of the CFDA is for doing the drug approval and review and approval process um, quite different from um, from Western countries. The major reason for the small number of uh, FTE within the CDE because the pharmaceutical revenue in China, in China only accounts for less than 2%. I believe in for 2013, it only accounts for 9.7% of the national uh, GDP, the country's GDP. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., I believe about 8% pharmaceutical revenue accounts for the, the U.S., the, the whole country's GDP about 8%. That's why the government didn't uh, invest too uh, much in the health authority. And they have only ended up with only, only a small number of people uh, in the review. Right. So just I want to add that, that, that because the Chinese agencies only have a very small number of statisticians. Right? I think, um, like Jay like, said, like it's about three. So they cannot actually be involved with every uh, NDA review. So when I talk to uh, their staff group head in the Chinese agency, he actually said that they are actually optional re- reviewers for many uh, NDA submissions. So they can only be involved with certain submissions if there is an issue and they have the resource to deal with that. So it's very, very different from US FDA or the EMA. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned that uh, there's a, a small number of statisticians at the uh, the Chinese regulatory authority, and that the that it's on the whole much smaller than the uh, the US FDA. How how uh, open is the regulatory authority? Say um, the biofarm section here in the US has a a meeting every year where the FDA and industry statisticians uh, get together and uh, and interact and collaborate. Are these Types of collaborations common in China? Yeah, the answer is yes. Yeah, I see uh, increasing visibility of the Chinese regulatory authority in the international organizations. For example, I started three years ago. The CFDA sent their staff member to attend ICH. Even China is not officially the ICH member. But China is what they call the observer, not the official member of ICH. You see the, the, you know, the growing involvement of uh, I mean, China's involvement in the global activity. You brought up ICH. What would it take for, uh, I guess, China to become a, a full member of, of the ICH? I don't know the timetable. And uh, I can clearly say, for example, uh, a couple of months ago, the ICH conference, the ICH conference in Japan, 
and over a thousand people attending. And uh, for I believe for many of the the sub the, the meetings and there are some of the Chinese people attending from uh, Chinese executive authority. And uh, so for many of the Chinese guidelines or guidance for uh, for the pharmaceutical industry, many of them simply adopted the, the same content uh, from ICH. For example, the, I was involved in a drafting or revision of statistical guidance for clinical trial in China, and also mm -hmm. the data standard for clinical for clinical studies. Two guidance uh, majority of the content simply translated from ICH uh, corresponding ICH uh, guidelines. But are, are there plans? Uh... Uh, if, if you know, uh, for China to become a, a formal member of ICH in the future? I can clearly see the trend. Uh, if you look at the beyond the industry, uh, mm -hmm. you know, China joins the global organization, the World Trade Organization, and some other organization, international organization. For ICH, I definitely see the trend. Uh, they're getting closer and closer. But in terms of how soon, I you don't know either. Many yeah. many factors you have considered politically, especially. So we're getting near the end um, of the discussion. As far as ISBS, you've had uh, past conferences in Shanghai, China, Berlin, Germany, uh, Bethesda, Maryland, the most recent one in Beijing, China. Can we expect that since this year it was in Beijing that the next uh, symposium would occur in Europe in 2017, or is it still too early to know where the next symposium will be. Thank you, Richard. That was a great guess. And um, I think we have started discussing about 2017 um, ISBS conference, and Europe is definitely one of the options. We are favorable options, given exactly the reason you said. And so we, we, that's why, again, you know, it's a high possibility. But again, it's too early to decide where in Europe. I mean, we can go back to Asia as well, or other parts of Asia than China also. So We'll see. I think time will tell, but um, Europe is definitely a possibility. Are there are, are there potential plans in the future to make the ISBS meeting an annual meeting or uh, offering webinars or uh, providing short courses on uh, years when the symposium doesn't occur? Or are the plans for now to just keep this to uh, an event that occurs every other year? Uh, we we actually talked about webinars. Um, I, I remember a couple of years back we were discussing about what else other uh, than hosting um, every other year conferences. And uh, so I think there is interest. Of course, there are other webinars like the biofarm section is quite active in webinars. There are DIA webinars, and so we have to find a niche area where um, we can do webinars which are not being covered. And uh, so I think it's possible. Uh, but um, as I said, we discussed that uh, we didn't go that route that point, but that doesn't say that we don't. Well, let's say I'm a, I'm an industry statistician or a regulatory statistician, and I, and I want to get involved with ISBS. How do I, I go about uh, volunteering my time? Yeah, or, every year we receive a quite a bit of a request from our attendees, conference attendees, and they express their strong interest to join the international effort of ISPS. Like this year, and we you know, uh, talked to our uh, committee members, and you know, there's anything I can do, uh, how can I join ISPS, uh, the great effort, international effort. 
So we are actually the we 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 rely on new member and to to come to to, to join us. Yeah, I just want to add that um, Richard, um, there is significant interest from attendees who attend uh, the ISBS conference, and every time it happens that we get new people joining. And I think it's important to attend and get a feel for what it is, and then you can find uh, where where the areas that you can help. The best way to show your interest is probably find one of the active members of ISBS exec committee and that you can find uh, from the ISBS website and maybe send up them an email and uh, you know uh, but as, as Jay mentioned and I mentioned too we uh, got a lot of requests uh, from the attendees uh, who after attending has proactively come and said no I want to get involved and how can I get there so as a committee I think is our obligation to use um, their enthusiasm and I think you need the new blood as well so it might be good to have more volunteers uh, and we'll definitely make them to use uh, in the future well thanks everyone for uh, taking the the time tonight and uh, Jay for you early this morning to talk to us on the podcast uh, so for you listening you can find out more information about ISBS by going to their website isbiostat.org thanks very much uh, for all of you talking to, uh, to me tonight, I'm at Frank, uh, Young, and Jay. I appreciate you taking time out of your schedules to uh, have this conversation tonight. Hey, Richard, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for thank all you your opportunity.